So there's a story about an elderly pastor. <clears throat> no, Pastor Larry, I'm not talking about you. Um, an elderly pastor who was in his closet looking for a tie, which I know some of you gave me that look today, like, did somebody die? Why are you wearing a tie? Um, you know, it's, it's bad when you never dress up and people look at you and go, what, what's going on? Uh, but he was looking for his tie. In the back of his closet one Sunday morning. And in the back of his closet, he finds a small box containing three eggs and a hundred one dollar bills. Kind of strange. He calls his wife into the closet and asks her about this. And of course, she is embarrassed because she's admitted that she has been keeping this secret for 30 years of marriage. Disappointed, the pastor, and he was a little bit hurt, asked why. Well, the right wife replied, she said, well, I, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. He's like, well, how could a box of eggs hurt my feelings? Well, see, every time during our marriage you delivered a poor sermon, I placed an egg into a box. And, of course, he's thinking three sermons out of 30 years. Pretty good record. And so it's nothing certainly to feel bad about. I said, well, what about the $100? He said, well, each time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them to the neighbor for a dollar. <laughs> So it was worse than he actually thought. It has been a long journey. We've been going through this series, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And even though uh, we started the series back in 2015 and now it's 2018 and we're finally ending, uh, it hasn't really taken that long. Uh, I'm only up here sporadically. and I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun for me. Um, and I enjoy the opportunity every time I, I get to, to get up here and to, to share with you guys and to be challenged along with you. And uh, so it's something that I just uh, absolutely love. And I want to thank you for the opportunity uh, to do it. It's something that I, I, I certainly don't take lightly. Um, and so I want to thank Pastor Larry. I know it's been a long uh, eight weeks here. I've preached six out of eight weeks. And oftentimes Pastor Larry will come in on a Sunday morning and just kind of look like a lost puppy dog. and doesn't know what he's doing um, because I'm up here. And so I thank you for that opportunity. And I know you're like me. You'd much rather be preaching and teaching than, than not. So uh, thank you for that. And I think it's been uh, beneficial for us. Um, we've had a chance to kind of do things different. And I feel like it's been beneficial for, for you as well. Or at least that's my hope. Because I've heard from each one of you, a lot of you, that you have been impacted by God's Word. And it's God's Word that does that, right? It doesn't matter who's up here speaking. As long as they are speaking about God's Word, that is the most important thing. And that is the thing that convicts and that is the, the thing that pierces to the heart. So I'm just honored to be a small part of that. So uh, I just want to share with you my appreciation for that. But we're finally here to the end of Ezra and finally to the end of Nehemiah. We're going to be looking into chapters 12 and 13 today. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It will also be up on the screen. We're going to be doing the end of chapter 12 through the end of chapter 13. We're going to find out uh, what's left in this great study for us to talk about? What we have learned, and you've seen it up here on the screen with our, our, our logo for the series, uh, is that our God is indeed greater. And I hope that you've gotten that each and every time that we've had the opportunity to talk. That He's greater than, than anything you could possibly face in your life. He's greater than any obstacle that could possibly come up in your life. He's greater than any enemy that could oppose you in your life. He's greater than your weaknesses. And I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of weaknesses. And I'm so thankful that he is greater than that. He's greater than all things. 
What we've come to find out is through the study of Ezra and Nehemiah is our God is greater than the kings that Ezra and Nehemiah served. He was greater than all the distractions that they faced uh, with all the tasks that they were doing. Because what was Ezra in charge of doing? He came back and he was trying to rebuild the temple. Well, he's done. Check mark. That's over. Nehemiah, he, his job was to rebuild the wall. Well, check mark. Done. That, that's over. Nehemiah, when you, when you just say the name Nehemiah, what you think of first is you instantly think of the wall. That was the task. That, that was his job. I mean, he's known for being a great leader. He's known for being a great communicator. He had a job to do, and now it's complete. And at the completion of this job, at the completion of this major task that he has been charged with, it's time to do two things. And we're going to do those this morning. It's time to rejoice, and it's time to remember. It had been a really long journey for them to finish this wall. So they're going to celebrate. But this wasn't just going to be any normal celebration. It was going to start off with a dedication. So if you look up uh, for uh, chapter 12, verse 27, you'll see that this wasn't just a celebration. It was a dedication. Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all the places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness. With hymns of thanksgiving and with psalms to the companies of cymbals and harps and lyres. Of course, what they're doing is they're going to dedicate this wall to the one who deserves all the credit. Yes, they all worked really hard. But what we know is, of course, they were going to dedicate it to God. So they were going to celebrate with gladness and joy and singing and instruments. I mean, this was going to be a regular old concert that they were going to have. They had worked really hard on this project. And they're going to celebrate just as hard. Of course, what we understand is that this is a, it's a holy event because this wall was being dedicated to a holy God, to the Holy One. Look at verse 30. The priests and the Levites, what did they do? They needed to purify themselves. They also purified the people and the gates and the wall. See, the priests, they, they needed to purify themselves. Yes, the people and even that one. We're not told exactly what they did to purify themselves. Although what we know from uh, previous uh, places in Scripture is that this idea of purification has this idea of, of cleaning it up. They needed to, to clean themselves up inside and outside. They would have made sacrifices. They would have went and changed their clothes and, and actually bathed. And they would have tried to pretty up that wall that they, they made. It was a dress-up occasion. And then something happens. Something that we haven't seen since chapter 7. And that is Nehemiah starts writing again in the first person. See, Nehemiah... He was a major part of all of this, and so he wants to end the book in this voice. But Nehemiah was up to something. See, Nehemiah, he not only organized the whole project, which was huge, but he's going to be organizing the celebration. And the celebration is going to be pretty cool. It's going to be a major event. Imagine with me. If you will, this event. There's going to be a lot of people involved. They, you had all the Levites. And then you had all the people listed. And we're not going to go through them. From verses 31 to 43. That were part of the celebration. You had singers and priests and musicians and dignitaries. excuse me, and, and even individuals that just show up to be a part of this. And how many people are part of it, we don't actually know. Because uh, Nehemiah used uh, words like some of the people and, and their kinsmen. But we get the idea that this event was no small occasion. It was something that was huge and big, and it was only fitting, isn't it? 
I mean, think of the amount of people that it took to, to build this wall, to build this project. It took a lot of people. So shouldn't it now, at the end of this time, at the end of the project, shouldn't it now take just as many to celebrate, to party, to remember, to rejoice? See, what Nehemiah does, and this is, this is really cool. Nehemiah, he's going to separate all the people into two groups. There's going to be a group that's going to go to the right. There's going to be a group that's going to go to the left. Ezra is going to be a part of the group that goes to the, the, the right. And he's going to go with the priests and the trumpets and the instruments. And then Nehemiah, he says, okay, I'm going to go with the people on the left. And so he's going to be with the priests and the trumpets and the singers. And on both ends, there's going to be choirs that are going to be singing and trumpets that are going to be blown. And so people would, would hear them from afar, but they would also see them. How are they going to see what's going on? Look at verse 31. I love this. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall. He asked them to come up on top of the wall. Are you kidding? Nehemiah, you've got to understand, has a sense of humor. He has a, a, a real funny sense of humor because it wasn't too much uh, time before then, in chapter 4, verse 3, that Tobiah was talking about their wall. And he was mocking them. And what does he say? He said, look, if even a fox should jump up on this wall, it's going to break down. I mean, Tobiah mocked the frailty of the wall. And now Nehemiah has two choirs marching on top of the wall. It's kind of a, a snub in, in Tobiah's direction. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, they, they were being mocked. They, they didn't know if they were going to finish this project. And then all of a sudden, everybody's saying how weak the wall is. And now he's got people marching around it and singing. What a really cool picture here. And of course we know, as you're thinking, you're thinking rock wall like this. No, no, it was like nine feet thick is what, is what the excavations tell us. Is this wall was, it was huge. And so they had the two choirs that were marching all around the wall and they're going to meet at the temple and they're going to celebrate and they're going to shout and they're going to cheer so that everybody in the area could hear them. It's quite a celebration. But of course, with any celebration, and with any good thing, all good things, they do end up coming to an end. As we move into chapter 13, which is the final chapter in this book, we can see in verse 1 that they start out pretty good. They are continuing to read the word, read the law, and they're doing it consistently. This is something that we've been challenged with, right? Almost every week, get in the word, be in the word. And so they're, they're trying what we're going to find out is, as we move into chapter 13, they're not only trying, but they're, they're failing. And I know what you're thinking, because I'm thinking the same thing. This is starting to be, sound like a broken record. I mean, the Israelites, okay, they continue to fail, they continue to fail, they continue to fail. And yes, it's true. But there's going to be a bright spot in this chapter, one that I absolutely love. It's in verses 4 through 9, and we're not going to read all, all the way through it. But th describing the situation, Tobiah, the enemy... The guy who's been called, causing all kind of mischief. I mean, he, 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 we, we know him from the book. He's kind of back on the scene. And somehow, some way, Tobiah has wiggled himself into the temple. He has found a room in the temple that's going to be just for him. How would this happen? Why would this happen? Look at verse 6 in chapter 13. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. Who was not in Jerusalem? 
Well, Nehemiah. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. So Nehemiah had left town. His job was complete. He, he, had a, he had a job to do that was to rebuild the wall. He says, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go back to the service of the king. So while he's away, the people get themselves into trouble. And they allow Tobiah to use his connections and to wiggle his way into the temple. But see, he was using a room. All the stuff was in a room that was meant for the grain offerings and the temple utensils and the tithes. I mean, this guy is a snake. Well, he's going to get what he deserves. Look at verse 8. It was very displeasing to me. So I threw out all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Nehemiah's like, no, not on my watch. It's time for you to leave. He's going to get tossed out of the rooms. And then what Nehemiah's going to do is he's going to cleanse the filth that was in those rooms and put it back to use for what God wanted to. But this was not the only issue. Cue the broken record, if you will, because all of a sudden what we find is that the Israelites, they're not giving to God as they should. I mean, remember the commitment that they made? I mean, this was just last week. They, they, they make a commitment to God, and yet they're starting to go back on it. Look, we don't know how long Nehemiah was gone, but it was long enough for the people to get themselves back into trouble. They were starting to neglect the things that they had put in writing, the things that they said, you know what, we're going to commit to doing, we're going to do it, we're going to not forsake God's house, we're going to give the best and the first of everything that we have, and yet they're not doing it. Nehemiah says, okay, we're going to set that straight. But this was not the only issue. They were not observing the Sabbath. Again, something that they said, we're going to do, and yet they haven't been doing it. They were allowing outsiders to come in during the Sabbath and, and to trade. And they, they were even treading wine on the Sabbath. And verse 18, Nehemiah said, reminds them, did not your fathers do the same thing? So that your God brought on us and on this city all this trouble, yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. They're like, hello, anyone in there? I mean, do, do you not remember what is going on? Your fathers did the same things, and how did that turn out for them? Not very good. Yet, this was not their only issue. Scripture goes on to tell us that they still will not separate from the culture around them. They were still intermarrying. God had told them, no, don't do that. Look how Nehemiah reacts in verse 25. He, he's, he's had up to here. So I contended with them and I cursed them. I struck some of them. I pulled out their hair and made them swear by God. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. I wonder if they'll remember that. I mean, Ezra, he gets upset and he pulls out his own hair. Nehemiah's got it figured out. There's got to be a better way. Let me pull out somebody else's hair. That'll work better. Maybe, just maybe, they'll actually remember. Again, he reminds him about their history. Verse 26, he talks, he talks to them about Solomon. Of course, we know who Solomon was. They knew who Solomon was. They said, don't you remember this guy? I mean, Solomon was a, a pretty impressive king as far as money goes, as far as accomplishments and achievements. But what do we know about Solomon? He was the wisest king that ever lived. But was he the greatest? Nah, he wasn't. Solomon, he asked for wisdom early on. He receives it, but then he ends up wasting it as foreign women turned his heart away from God. See, at the beginning of his life, 
And you'll see it all throughout the books that cover him. He loved God at the beginning. He loved God. He loved God. And then that love ends up being wasted on pagan women. Oh, how quickly they forget about what they had gone through. They keep forgetting. This book only has two verses remaining in it. And as Nehemiah looks back over all that has happened, as he recalls the amazing things that God has done, he doesn't end with a reflection like you would think he would. I mean, he, he had this project that was going on. That's what people remember about Nehemiah. I mean, it, Nehemiah is usually the go-to person or topic or book when churches are starting to have a building project. When they want to start getting people excited and, 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 and get going. Look, look at what Nehemiah did. However, and I hope you've seen this throughout the study, is that Nehemiah... This book is about so much more than just a wall. I mean, first what we find out is that it was done for the glory of God. That, that is paramount. That is obvious. Second, it was, it was set up to, to pave a way for the people to be prepared in such a way that would bring that glory to God. Notice he doesn't end talking about the wall. His, fi his final words about his project were not about the wall. What he does, he speaks about what God has done and what God has done through the people. See, Nehemiah, he served the entire time. It wasn't about for him, it was about God, and he makes that abundantly clear. But keep in mind what Nehemiah is doing. Is he setting the stage for the most important person in all of history? That's Jesus Christ. See, this writing pretty much marks the end of the Old Testament. There's about 400 years that separates Nehemiah to the birth of Christ. These years are called the intertestamental period, often called silent years. But as one commentator points out, they were anything but silent. The events and literature and social forces of these years would shape the world of the New Testament. It wasn't silent. God was silent for a while. But see, what happened through that history, that those 400 years, it shaped the world into what we see as the Gospels open up. See, the, the, the joys that were, were heard afar, the celebration of that wall had been all but silent. But those joys would be rekindled with a person in Jesus Christ coming onto the scene. Of course, we know that rejoicing would once again be brought back and the shouts of praise would come again because of Messiah. But, and we know this as well, that those shouts of praise would be turned into shouts of anger and shouts of hate. Those shouts, of course, that would lead to the death of Jesus on the cross. That then, of course, lead to the burial in the grave that would then lead to the resurrection of Jesus Christ on that fateful day. Once again, reviving the joy of the world because... We must rejoice. He's alive. He defeated sin and death. And those joyous shouts would once again be heard all throughout the land. And no matter how much anybody could try, because history has tried to blot out Jesus, his followers, his word, it cannot be done and it will not be done. What a time of rejoicing. They were rejoicing in what God has done. The book ends as it begins. It begins in prayer and it ends in prayer. It doesn't end with any fanfare. It doesn't end with a, hey, look at me. It ends in a way that really epitomizes who Nehemiah was. And who was he? He was a humble servant of God. And so he's going to pray. And he's simply going to ask God to remember him. He says, God, remember me. Remember all the work that I have done. He says this five times in his book. God, remember me. 
In fact, this word remember is used a total of nine times throughout the book. It's kind of a, a reoccurring theme. Yes, it was a time for rejoicing, but it was also a time of remembrance. Imagine what the people that were marching on the wall must have been thinking. As they were marching on that wall, they, they were probably no doubt reminded of the hard work that it took to build that wall. They were no doubt reminded of the threats and the dangers, and, but most importantly, I'm sure they were reminded about the faithfulness of God. Perhaps as they were walking on this wall, they would come to a part and they go, you know what, I was working on this part. Look how great our God is. Look at what he was able to accomplish. Look, they can look over their history, just like we did last week. And they can remember what God had done for them all the way back to the inception of their people in the nation of Egypt. Yet just from Ezra chapter 1 to now, we have seen God do some amazing things in their lives. We, we have been challenged 17 different times with the fact that God is greater than, than anything that we could go through. 17 different times we've opened up Ezra and Nehemiah and we've looked at it. And, and I want to just highlight some of the things that we can remember. We're not going to go through all of them. But these are, these are encouraging. Because what we found out as we started Ezra is we found out that our God is a covenant-keeping God. That means He keeps His promises. He keeps His words. That's encouraging. We found out that God is, is able to use anyone to fulfill His purpose. Doesn't that make you happy? God can use anyone, anything to complete his purpose. We found out that, yes, we're going to have many obstacles in our life. But what can God do with those obstacles? He can turn them into opportunity. We found out that we have an amazing word. God's word. God's amazing, inspired, inerrant word. And that we are to do what with it? We're to study it and practice it and teach it. We've been reminded that the goal in our life for a believer... Is not how great that uh, we can be in our life, but how great God can be through our life. That process, of course, we found out, is most productive when we actually take action, when we move, when we humble ourselves, when we seek God. Through the study, we've been kind of hit square in the face with sin. You know, when we recognize sin, what do we need to do? We need to respond to it. Respond appropriately to it. There's a mourning that happens. There's a confessing without excuse. While fully appreciating the grace and the mercy of God that we are receiving from salvation. We, we have found out that God wants us to join him in the work that's around him. Not for our glory, but for his. We, we found out he's given us a, a purpose. He's given us truth and a perspective. And what we found out is when we look into God's word, there's this reflection that happens. What does that reflection do? It causes Confession that leads to life change. It's just a small sampling of the things that we have seen, we have heard, we have been challenged and encouraged with over this study. We found out that our God is indeed greater. So we rejoice in that. We remember that. That's what the ending of this book is all about. Rejoicing and remembering. Both of which is what we need in our lives. We need it. We need to rejoice in what God has done around us. And the tempting thing is this. The tempting thing is to just rejoice in the physical things that we can see. And look, those are good because we are, we are a blessed people. I mean, we all woke up this morning, didn't we? I mean, we, we, we had the air in our lungs. We have food in our belly and a roof over our head. And, and some of us have, have family around us. Some of us have a spouse. Some of us have a job. All these things are great. But do not lose sight of the, of the fact that what matters in life most... What's most important in your life is your eternity. 
is where you will spend eternity. See, life is great here. It, it, it is. It is challenging. But we enjoy life, don't we? We want to enjoy it. And, and I will tell you, what comes after this is going to blow this out of the water. Of course, we know the only way to the Father. The only way to an eternity with God Almighty in heaven is through the Son, Jesus Christ. So in our rejoicing, when we rejoice, we need to rejoice in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to rejoice first that, that He came. Second, that he, he lived that perfect life and became that perfect sacrifice, that spotless Lamb of God that we desperately needed. Third, that He would actually, actually sacrifice and die or someone like you and me. Someone like the Israelites. I mean, what a messed up bunch of people. I mean, don't we think that way when we think about the Israelites? We look at them with such disdain. We judge this nation so harshly. We agree with their assessment that they are stubborn and arrogant, that they just don't listen. We think to ourselves, why in the world would they act that way? Why would they do all those things after God, all the things that God had done for them, after all the warnings he gave them, all the chances and the grace and mercy? I mean, after all, God loved them like a mother loves her child with a compassion that cannot be matched. And yet, what did they do? They turned and they went their own way. They ignored him. They ignored their creator. They did the opposite of what God asked them to. What in the world were they thinking? Yeah, I think if we're honest, we can see a similar pattern in our own lives. Perhaps not to the extremes as the nation of Israel. But don't you fall back into sin sometimes? Do you give in to the temptation of the world? Don't you sometimes follow your own desires rather than the things that God has for you? I don't want to answer for you, but I'll answer for me. So yes, I do. I struggle. I can be so stubborn, thick-headed, arrogant. Thank goodness there's no amens right here. Yeah, what I found out is that God loves me. I don't let God die for me. He sent His only Son. He's forgiven me for all the junk that I go through and do. Regardless of how much I say I love Him, no matter how much I want to serve Him, I keep falling. I don't know if you can relate, but I rejoice in that. I rejoice that I serve an awesome God who loves me no matter what. And sometimes I just have to celebrate Him because guess what? The, equi the equation here isn't me plus Him. It's Him plus nothing. He is the one he is God Almighty. He is the sovereign God, and I can rest in that and rejoice in that. And that's what they did. They celebrated that in chapter 12. Of course, we rejoice in all of that. But it would mean nothing if our God did not defeat sin and death. And so when we rejoice, we celebrate just like they did. We not only rejoice, but we remember. See, rejoicing is more of that upbeat, joyous occasion. Well, remembrance... It's more of a solemn occasion. When you're talking about in memory of something, it is to think back on that thing. And while, yes, we may rejoice in it, we also have a sense of reverence and a sense of awe and a sense of honor. See, when we think of what Almighty God did for us, all that He accomplished by stepping out of heaven, taking the form of a man, and willingly being the perfect sacrifice that we need, we need to rejoice in that. We would be lost without it. 
when we think of the cost. We think of all that our God did to accomplish the task of defeating sin and death. It is absolutely astounding. We must remember his sacrifice. When we think of what he did and what he went through for you and I, it causes this inner stirring, doesn't it? That inner stirring hopefully causes an outer action of worship. See, when you think of the things that God has done for you and you realize the sacrifice that he has made, oftentimes it will bring you to tears. It may bring you to your knees. See, that, that is the remembrance that is talked about in 1 Corinthians 11 at the institution of the Lord's Supper. See, that's what is meant when Paul repeats the word Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so this morning, as we come to this table, my hope is that you do have a rejoicing. That you can rejoice in the salvation that you have received, but that you remember the sacrifice, the cost that it took to secure that salvation. So I'm going to ask Ray to come up. He's going to be sharing a special song with us. And as he does this, this is your opportunity to come to this table in such a way that is pleasing to God. You know, this is a, this is a family meal. This is a, a special occasion in the life of a church. That we come together and we rejoice and we remember. This is... For believers, it doesn't matter if you are, are not a member of our church. If you are a believer, you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you are now living for Him. We invite you to participate. But also, we want to make sure we come to this in a proper manner. The Scriptures say that we should do that, right? That we need to pure. Remember the the the, the, the Israelites, the, the the people. They purified themselves. They purified their hearts. We need to come before God because there may be things in our hearts that we're just not confessing. It may be just so much in our lives right now that we just got to let it pass by. That's okay too. But to come to this table in a correct manner, that's what God wants. So I want you to take this opportunity. You can bow your heads and close your eyes. You can look up at the screen as there will be pictures that will go along with the song. You can just think about the, the, the words. You can pray to God. Whatever it takes for you to come to this table in a sense of rejoicing, in a sense of remembering, and in a correct way, in a proper manner, we want you to do that now. And as Ray is going to uh, play, I'm going to ask the gentlemen that are going to be helping with communion to come forward as well.